Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we're obsessed with torsos, which is why we're reading through the webcomic Check Please, strip by strip, now that it's concluded, to reprocess how we feel about the whole thing, both on an individual installment and an overarching basis. Today, we will be talking about the comic 1.20, Playoffs Part 3, which premiered on August 1st, 2014. I'm Secret OMG. Who's on the line? Hi, I'm Tomato. I also love torsos and think about them constantly, especially if they're homoerotic, but not inherently. Picking up immediately from Playoffs Part 2, Jack wins the face-off passes the puck to Biddy. Biddy skates behind the goal, passes to Jack. As Biddy has just released the puck, he is hip-checked by a player on the opposing team. As he's being lifted up into the air, Jack shoots and scores a goal, following which Biddy lands on the ice. He loses his helmet. Ransom, holster, Shitty and Lardo look on in horror. As the goal horn sounds, Jack looks at Biddy and says, Biddy. As we'll discuss, that Biddy meant something to me in 2014, which it might not mean anymore, but it's worth unpacking, I think, a little bit. Well, what's so interesting is that the etymology of the word Biddy is, uh, it means small. So... People don't often talk about that, but it's true. The last time we were doing a hockey shit with a ransom and holster comic about butts, Tomato asked the question of why there isn't one of these ransom and holster installments about checking itself, since it's such a central issue. And I stand by my previous point that those hockey shit comics are about the sociocultural elements of hockey. I would also make the point that in this strip, as Biddy is being checked, he's doing this voiceover, giving the kind of information that would be given in a hockey shit with Ransom and Holster about checking. You know, a defensive play that separates the player with the puck from the puck. There are a few different kinds of checking and also what the impact of it is in gameplay. That's basically what you would get if this were a hockey shit with Ransom and Holster. But I think the fact that it's sort of treated with weight rather than being sort of like pushed off into a gag comic, which is basically what those Ransom and Holster strips are, gives it narrative weight in terms of the plot of the comic and also thematic weight for... Bitty. I think revisiting this strip that this is totally the right way to do it and it's a really effective way. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about it, especially given our discussion in last episode about the placing of the audience as Biddy's friends, is the way that this description of checking breaks the fourth wall. So there's something kind of great about it, uh, which is unusual from other ways that Biddy breaks the fourth wall. This isn't in a vlog and the actual description of what checking is and how it works. All of those are speech balloons, not in voiceover squares. So they're happening or appear to happen in the moment. I don't know if there are other times in the comic where this happens, where Biddy talks directly to us, the audience, in a moment rather than through the conceit of the vlog. But if they happen, it's pretty rare. So there's a certain narrative weight to that, like formally. And then also because it's happening in the moment and not through the vlog, there isn't the same kind of filtering effect or distancing effect that the vlog gives to any given action. Like normally you hear Biddy summarize or introduce something that happens, something that he's already had time to process, something that he's performing, usually an emotion. Even when he's discussing his own emotions, it's often in a pretty performative, I want to say almost like curational way. That's a maybe crazy way to say that, but he's turning it into a narrative. In this moment, he is describing things. He is giving the reader information and it is a kind of performance, but it's not 
already synthesized. He's describing something as it happens. So it feels much more intimate without that filtering effect. I think there's really effective pacing manipulation. Like we often discuss how Ngozi's overall pacing in the comic isn't that effective, but for this particular strip, it's really effective. And the same strategy that's employed in previous strips where one moment of maybe 35 seconds is broken into an entire strip in ways that aren't always effective is done really effectively here. Like you can feel the slow-mo essentially, and it's done really, really well. I also think that it builds emotional weight in the relationships in a way that maybe other strips have not really yet done. Like for me, the work that's done in the last four panels is but he hits the ice, we see his helmet crash off of his head without his face in the panel and at a similar angle as the hockey prince panel where Jack's hand is open and we see scattered pills. So there's a really interesting visual parallel there. Holster, Ransom, Shitty, and Lardo react in a way that is more intimate and more effective at building those friendships than almost anything else we've seen in the comic thus far for me. Not more effective than necessarily all of the extras put together where we really see the team building happen, but really, really effective. And then the final panel where Jack is staring presumably at Biddy, with his hockey tiny pupils as behind him a ref uh, blows the whistle. Like, that does more for me building Jack's care about Biddy than any number of sort of lucky shot scenes or moments where Jack is like towering over Biddy on the ice or whatever. This is really, 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 really good character work. And so we're brought into an emotional place with Biddy because of his description of what checking is and then kind of brought into that intimacy with his friends as well. So it's really, really done nicely. I also just want to point out that this doesn't actually treat Biddy's fear as a punchline. It takes his fear of checking really seriously. The fear feels much more real, much more worrying. Like it feels like there's much more at stake than when he's like, you know, a fainting goat on the ice, for example. And overall, I just think it's a really, really good strip. Like I think it's really well done. Unlike some of the other strips, Ngozi here is really, really using the medium to her advantage. I think the word cinematic comes up a lot in relationship to the art direction of Check Please. And also, I think I've heard it applied to this strip. I don't watch very many movies. It would be difficult to call myself super well-informed in like cinema as an art form. But even with my limited knowledge, I can sort of envision the style of film that this is cribbing from. Maybe this is not the best example, but it's the best that I can think of. The Guy Ritchie 2009 Sherlock Holmes film has all of these moments where Holmes describes what he's going to do as he's describing it as a voiceover, the movie slows down and like gives you that description over slow motion footage of what's going to happen and then it happens. That's not exactly what's going on here, but it feels sort of like stylistically related, the way that like the character is narrating the action as the action is occurring. I feel like there are probably other precedents or other related styles or other related bodies of work that have similar tactics. I just don't necessarily know them because I'm not super familiar with like the vernacular of film. It feels stylistically like something you would see in a movie. She's almost presenting this comic as if it is a storyboard for a film. Film ineptitude aside, I've seen maybe more films than you have or movies than you have, but wouldn't call myself someone who's like, quote, good at film, end quote. But I am interested in kind of certain parts of film theory because it informs ways that I think about dramatic work. I do kind of want to also look at this moment where Biddy says, there's a reason I'm afraid of checking. For me, this moment does so much setup work. And we can discuss, you know, does that setup actually pay off? I don't think that it really does. But when this was still a project 
with a vast number of unknowable strips in the future, this moment to me of Biddy falling and saying, there's a reason I'm afraid of checking, felt like it was creating almost like an open parenthesis that would eventually be filled in with something really profound, if you know what I mean. Turns out, nah. But there's something still really lovely to me about this moment, and I, I guess I wanted to know, when you came to this comic, obviously Jack and Biddy were already together, but Biddy's relationship with hockey was not yet complete. So how did you react to this moment? What did you expect out of it? I don't recall, actually. I have no frame of reference for what I made of this moment. I, I don't remember encountering it. I don't remember thinking about it. I, it made no impression on me that that sticks with me to this day. Okay, fair enough. I remember it very clearly. But again, I was reading it as it came out. So it probably had a different impact and people talked about it in a different way. I mean, I don't know why. I don't, I don't think it's because it's not a good comic. I think this is a really impressive strip. Like all the compliments that you've given it, I would second. I think it's really memorable. I think insofar as Check, Please is ever experimental, this is a strip that breaks its own expectations and breaks its own trends. It's really well drawn. I think it effectively communicates what's happening in the hockey. I think it is a memorable strip that I think of a lot when I think of Ngozi being a talented visual storyteller. But for whatever reason, I, I don't have a clear memory of what I made of this strip on my first read-through. I have said several times over the past, uh, I don't know what episode this is, 30 maybe? No, 28? I can't do math. I have made the point several times over the course of this podcast that being afraid of exactly what happens in this strip, in fact, being afraid of checking, is like a really real and valid fear. It's not only possible that what happens to be in this strip would happen playing hockey. It's likely, if not like all but certain. And in fact, when we start getting plot lines about the actual NHL, we see things like this happen not infrequently. And we see lots of professional hockey players become injured. So yeah, I mean, it's completely reasonable that like you would expect and anticipate and indeed even fear this kind of check in this kind of injury. I think it's completely not ridiculous of Biddy to have that fear. More to the point, I think it's worth reiterating. Yes, most people would want to avoid being checked into the air in front of hundreds if not thousands of people before landing on their head and spending all summer recovering from a concussion. It's like an aversion to having that happen to you is completely rational. Check, please, does not seem to attempt to address what makes people sublimate those risks and those fears in order to play hockey? I think to a certain extent, it's bizarre that Chef Please never directly engages with this question because it's supposedly the raison d'etre of the comic. The thing that makes people sublimate those fears is toxic masculinity. That's the answer. That's the reason why somebody would effectively, you know, enact a death drive, if you believe that such a thing is real, and put themselves in a position where they may in fact be like knocked into the air and land on their head every couple of days for like decades of their life. It's very, very legitimate to be afraid of that happening. So the fact that Biddy says, there's a reason I'm afraid of checking, to me, it's like, yes, of course there is. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel kind of stupid for continuing to beat this drum because I'll acknowledge as many times that I have to, the story of check, please, is what if somebody who had those fears decided to do this anyway? That's the story. That's the conflict. There wouldn't be anything without that. And it's a perfectly valid, you know, conflict around which to build a story. The issue is it never actually bothers to answer the question. 
It also engages in the process of sublimating by refusing to answer the question. And there are obviously reasons and context sports that, at least on the face of it, are not all about toxic masculinity. You know, speaking as a former slash maybe someday again contact sport player in a sport that is mostly played by people who are not men. But you can't actually remove sports as a concept, especially like in an American context, from, I think, toxic masculinity. The narratives around sports you can't remove from toxic masculinity. Hockey and men's hockey specifically, you can't remove from toxic masculinity. Like this sport doesn't exist in the way that it currently exists with the conversations around it that currently exist without the racist heteropatriarchy and toxic masculinity. I think that you make a really, really, really good point when you pull up the fact that although on a superficial level, Check Police seems to address some of these concerns, for example, by focusing on someone who is afraid of checking, who doesn't like look or talk or seem a particular way that is associated with great masculinity, basically, but never actually dives into questioning the foundation of the sport itself and of the culture that invented the sport. And that's like one of the major problems of the comics ethos, I think. I think it's really interesting that even when injuries are shown in this comic, they don't tend to be explored in especially meaningful ways. And I say that as someone whose life was altered, although not hugely, but somewhat significantly for a time by a concussion and what I now realize was post-concussion syndrome. And obviously, therefore, I'm a biased person who's coming into this with opinions about how concussions can be written about in kind of interesting ways or the way that concussions can impact a life. Not all concussions look the same. Lots of different things happen to different people. But I think it's kind of interesting and emblematic of one of the problems of this comic that although serious injuries, which by the way, a concussion, no matter how mild, is a brain injury, so it's pretty serious. Although these things are explored, the consequences and the way that your life changes as a result of even a mild injury that only temporarily sets you off track of your given life path. You know, we never really see those consequences play out in a meaningful way. And I think that that is part of the problem of the way that hockey is not unpacked and violence and masculinity are not unpacked in this comic. The answer that Check Please supplies is what if somebody effeminate did it too? If somebody who doesn't resemble your typical straight-acting, macho-fronting hockey player played hockey, then you would be challenging toxic masculinity. But increasingly, my response to the comic's ethos in that sense is that that is not a liberationist philosophy, that is an assimilationist philosophy. It's something that you're not ever going to get a consensus on. And absolutely, I believe that, like, there should be no barriers to playing hockey. Anyone who feels like playing, regardless of how femi they are or how small they are, should be able to play if they want to. The same way that I feel like anybody who wants to get married should be able to get married. There should not be laws that are legally discriminatory. At the same time, expanding a system without reforming it is not liberation, it's assimilation. And that is... Part of the problem, I think, in the conversation around Check, Please, in the ways that people discuss it and frame it, because it is framed as a liberatory text. It's not framed as, oh, this text shows us what happens if you internalize the values of your culture and reproduce them, uh, even though you are not of a given demographic who is expected to reproduce them faithfully or who might be treated as though you can't reproduce them faithfully. Like that's not the framework. The framework is this comic has freed hockey from the shackles of masculinity. And so that's where part of the cognitive dissonance and frustration around the comic comes from, I think. Whatever Biddy sacrifice here, Jack does end up 
scoring. He scores a goal and they win the game. They execute what's called a one-timer, where after Biddy passes to Jack, Jack takes one shot. He doesn't travel with the puck. He has one time to make a shot into the goal directly, and he does. That's how I'm interpreting what happens in this particular strip. It is not a no-look shot, as far as I can tell. Biddy does seem to look at Jack as he is passing the puck, so it is not a, what you may call, no-look one-timer, which is something that comes up later on with another line mate of Jack's. Presumably, Biddy gets an assist for this play, so I guess he gets a point or whatever he would get for having gotten this check. Does Jack scoring and winning the game make this play worth it? How would you even figure that out? That's the question. Do you think if Biddy knew he was going to get checked and land on his head, he would do the same thing, knowing that it would cause them to win the game? Or do you think he would try to skate around the other player or something and therefore not be in a position to like make the pass? Well, I think worth it is a complicated term, right? The way that I read Biddy, he would try not to get a concussion and then feel guilty about it. Like I think if Biddy were Cassandra and knew what would happen and, and uh, you know, Apollo came down and was like, Biddy, skate around this man or whatever. Um, he would do it and then he would feel really guilty about it. I think worth it is really complicated. On the one hand, they get into the playoffs. On the other hand, Biddy now can't play in the playoffs. This is the, this is the playoffs. They're already in the playoffs. This is like Sorry. the sequifinals finals or something. If they win this game, they go to the final four. It, that information's not in this strip. So like, why would you remember it? I meant, uh, yeah, you're right. But I did actually remember that they were already in the playoffs, but I meant going to the, the semifinals, like the, the second to last game. I don't know how we're supposed to read it. And it's hard for me to guess Based on this strip alone, I would say, given the weight of everyone's reaction, no, it wasn't worth it. But given the comic's narrative arc overall, I would say the argument is that it is worth it because ultimately it leads to everything else that happens, i.e. happy ever after. So it seems to me that in the frame of the comic, yes, sacrificing the body as you might hear you know some hockey commentators say once in a while is worth it to me even as someone who like has played and enjoys contact sports and like likes hockey although again casually no (laughs) it's not worth it permanent brain damage however slight is not worth whatever fucking rubber disc you put in whatever net like no it's not I don't think it is, but I think that it's really hard to read how the characters react because eventually they all, they don't address it in great depth. And when the next plot rolls out, it it has all been worth it. I don't think you have to have gotten a concussion to not want to get a concussion. I can understand if you're like a professional hockey or a professional football player and you have been trained, again, because of toxic masculinity, to feel like this isn't that big a deal and it's just something that happens sometimes in this sport and you can recover from it and move on. Like, okay, I get those people probably have been trained to be blasé about it. However, I've never had a concussion. I don't want a fucking concussion. And I feel like probably the aftermath of this for Biddy is like really painful and difficult. I don't want to live like that. I would hope that nobody has to. And I would also make the point here, although I'm sure there's other places in this comic where it could be brought up, just concussions are only one problem. Having your head knocked around repeatedly at sub-concussion level is also a giant risk, and that's potentially what leads to, to CTE or, you know, basically collective brain damage that leads to, like, the deterioration of the brain. Either you can get it in, like, giant traumatic doses in the form of concussions, or if you're going to keep playing hockey for decades, you can sustain it little by little in a way that builds up and is possibly catastrophic. So, yeah, I mean, like, nobody wants to have head trauma. 
it can, it can really feel like, oh, you know, something got knocked around in there in a way that's like not good. So I feel like the impulse of not wanting to fall on your fucking head and have your helmet ripped off in the middle of a hockey game is probably like pretty sensible. And the number of things you have to do in order to sublimate rationality and get to a point where you voluntarily do this is a invasive system of gendered coding that is worth questioning and exploring. And my problem with the comic is not that it's depicting these things. It's that it doesn't seem to be questioning them. It seems to think that the only problem with hockey is that there are no out gay players. But if one player comes out, then eventually everything will be fine for everybody. When it's like, yes, these are complicated, you know, enmeshed issues that are difficult to separate from each other. But it's not just that there's no gay players, and it's not just that it's like primarily white players. It's like a much larger, more complicated problem of like how violence is coded and how we like ritualistically train young men to engage in this system of behavior without like developing a sense of self that allows them to like activate self preservation while they're in this sport. I really feel like, I guess we'll have opportunities to talk about this over the next couple of strips, but I feel like it probably sounds like I'm saying, fuck, check, please. Why is it engaging with this? I think the answer to this would have been maybe Biddy actively in the comic asking himself, is this something I really want to consider doing? And then we could see him making a decision to keep going. But he doesn't make a decision to keep going. It's never a choice. He just does. I am of the potentially controversial opinion that there's almost nothing that shouldn't be explored in fiction. I think that fiction is a way that we as humans can think about ourselves and others, can imagine potential futures and things that never happened, and can synthesize and question basically everything that happens around us. Like I think storytelling is integral to humanity basically. And that as part of that, we should be able to show almost anything. There are ways to show and question things that have better or more effective impact than others for what I personally think is like good or interesting or worthwhile fiction. And that I understand that everyone has different opinions about what that means. And so this is why like discourse, again, in the discussion sense, not in the Tumblr sense happens because people have different goals and ideas about what's important to think about. I think it would be totally fine. And in fact, fascinating to see a biddy who wrestles with the idea, do I want to do this? And then chooses yes. What would that tell us about him? What would that tell us about, you know, the world in which he lived and his values but to highlight the questioning would invite the reader to also question the system that Betty's operating in and would serve to provide a more complicated portrait than hockey is good and everyone should have access to it. And instead kind of question what Secret has pointed out, which is hockey exists. It is a, the result of a very complicated system of ideals and ideologies and practices. There are things about it which are worth questioning and reforming. And again, I say this as someone who enjoys hockey and also likes this webcomic. The only time we really see Biddy begin to question his place on the team is really, really early on in year one, which we've already discussed, when he says, maybe I should go home, maybe I should quit. And that narrative of choosing to leave hockey isn't really explored. And also because it's a result of Jack kind of being an asshole to Biddy and because Biddy doesn't really seem to take it seriously, it's almost couched as a potential failure of Biddy's if he decided to leave. And it's the more successful, stronger, better thing to stay. This is sort of one of the problems of this narrative around this sport in this comic. It's not that Biddy decides to stay. People decide to do things for all sorts of reasons. It's that 
Biddy's choices are never pushed on. They're never shown in opposition to another option. They're always the right thing to do and they always lead to his success. And that ultimately ends up underlining the system in which they're made and supporting the system in which they're made. And maybe that makes it fluffier because you don't kind of have the underlying tragedy of like, this man decided brain damage was worth it for true love. But like, that's what happens. I don't know. I feel similarly and really complicated about the way in which this comic just kind of doesn't end up doing what it kind of said it would do on the tin. And I think if the narrative around it had been different, both from the author and from fans, probably I wouldn't be so frustrated. But every review that talks about this comic that isn't sort of in the OMGCP critical corner in both like the fan world and the publishing world seems to completely just skate over, haha, any depth of the conversation of the world in which Checklist takes place. You know, our world one step to the left. And I don't know, I find that really frustrating. So Jack calls him Biddy for the first time. Jack doesn't actually end up calling him Biddy very much after this. He usually calls him Biddle or Bits if he's gonna use an affectionate nickname. So I don't know, feels kind of feels kind of weird to me that he uses it. But I think you have some thoughts on why this was at the time, at least a very meaningful gesture on Jack's part. For me and in fandoms I've been in, although I think not so much in your experience, for me in previous fandoms and in the original fiction circuit that I was in circa, let's say, 2004. The first time a love interest calls the main character, or vice versa, their name for the first time could be a really, really big deal. I'm, maybe you guys know Naomi Novik, also known as Astolot Online, has at least one or two fics where this happens. I'm thinking right now of a Witcher fic where this happens. Megan A. Dare, one of the founders of Less Than Three Press, uh, a much beloved but sadly no longer extant small game romance press uh, had this happen in her novel that she wrote. I don't remember what it's called. It took place in a desert. Don't worry about it. Anyway, the first time that a character called another character by name, it was like a really, really big fucking deal. This happened in The Captive Prince, another novel written online originally and then self-published, then finally actually published. Names are a really big deal, deal in that series. And the first time that one character calls another character, his proper name is, is a big deal. So this is a trope definitely of gay romance that I've read, both in fanfic and in original fiction. To me, this moment was very much in conversation because that moment of naming almost always comes as part of a revelation usually an emotional revelation, but sometimes also a plot revelation in which the characters recognize their feelings for each other in some way. I think for me, this moment was very, very impactful because it spoke about that pattern and was part of, I would suspect, the fanfic trope in OMG Check These that we talked about that's not the name of this comic, of Check, Please, that we talked about, where Jack knew first. Like, for me, this moment of Jack saying, Biddy, very much seems like a realization moment where perhaps Jack realizes his feelings are deeper than he thought they were. Turns out, probably not. Maybe the feelings he realized here, he realizes here are responsibility and friendship, not love. But definitely that moment of revelation is, for me, a staple of a certain old school style of fanfic and romance fic. I don't see it so much anymore. That could just be the fandoms that I'm in, but yeah, definitely in conversation with that trope for me. I just wanted to make the point before anybody comes at us that as far as I'm concerned, Astolat has linked herself, outed herself as Naomi Novik. She has, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a post right now where somebody says, do you think Naomi Novik ever looks at AO3, sees some incest mpreg, and whispers to herself, I never wanted this? And uh, Astolat reblogged it and said, no. As far as I'm aware, that's somebody linking themselves to their so-called wallet name. Don't get pissed at us. I, I think that's, that's pretty clear. That said, for whatever reason, like, it seems like Astolat and Naomi Novik, according to fan lore, are two different people. 
and um, in a in a story on Vox about AO3 winning a Hugo Award from last year, very competent and and certainly not bad journalist uh, Asia Romano treated Naomi Novik and Astolat as if they were two different people. So I think there might be some apprehension over whether or not it's okay to like link these two identities, but like, I, I think it is. It wasn't always at one point. I mean, I've been, I've followed Estelat's work for a long time and I've known her real identity for a long time as well. And she used to link from her fandom journal. She used to link Naomi Novik, but wouldn't link to her fandom stuff from Naomi Novik. So it was a one way street. But in the past few years has definitely opened up about the identity. And I know that I've seen blog posts where she connected them pretty openly. The point is that Naomi Novik has in the past few years quite openly connected her fan and professional identities. And since the Hugo Award has like definitely not done anything to separate them. Look at that beautiful cat. He wants to just like eat all my cords. I think he's angry because he was playing with a noisy ball and I took it away from him. It's not a good time for him to make destruction. Yeah, uh, as you mentioned, I have never been in a fandom where this like using a character's never real name was a big deal. Like the minority of fandoms that I have been in, which is like three, uh, have all basically, until Check Please, had characters just like, you know, their name was Stan and everyone called them Stan. So it's not much of a it's not much of a thing. The comics ethos, as I have recently identified it for myself and on this podcast, is shining through in this episode. And this is really where the plot of what is Biddy gonna have to do to fit into hockey begins to crystallize. I would say that Check Please as a text is preaching the idea that success is a process of suffering and setback and endurance. That in order to be successful, you have to suffer. You added the process of internalization at the end of that, suffering, setback, endurance, and then internalization regardless of how you phrase it or what words you use. This is like an inherently conservative, libertarian, capitalist view that success is the earned product of hard work and risk-taking is basically like a pretty conservative viewpoint that in order to deserve things, wealth, healthcare, rights, you have to effectively go through some sort of process of poverty or... Sorry, my cat is really being a little bitch, so it's hard for me right now. I mean, it's basically like the conservative principle, like the, the even I would say like the GOP principle, the concept that you have to basically like suffer and like be meted out rewards starting from a place of nothing, like no advantage. Obviously, that's not how it works in principle, but that at least is sort of the textual ethos. That's why we don't want to have welfare, because you have to do something to get something. I feel like that's basically kind of what Check Please is saying. And here's the thing. I think if you ask the author of Check Please about this, she would reject that. I think it has more to do with the way in which these values have seeped into the American cultural psyche than it does about how somebody votes necessarily. But I think it's here. I think it's, uh, I think it's in this comic. I think this is basically... Biddy can't get the guy, get the cookbook deal, win the Frozen Four unless he gets this fucking concussion and puts himself in a place of harm and just like works through it. I think that's kind of an inherently conservative, you know, small C concept. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, probably not a lot of people would make that criticism of Check Please, but I think it's there. Oh, I fully agree with it. Again, I'm not sure how many people would automatically look at this gay comic and go, ah, yes, the GOP. But I think that it's really there. And I also think that there's 
Okay, bear with me. I'm going to get real wild here. I think that one of the problems of typical narrative and the way that we conceive of narrative, i.e. non-experimental narratives, like check please, is that our sense of what a narrative is and can be is itself shaped by this system, informed not only by capitalism, but also, in my opinion, by Christianity and by other kinds of ideological values that we internalize and assimilate in various ways. Yes, agree. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. And so even our ability to imagine how to tell stories and what kind of stories are valuable are shaped also by like the overarching, completely brain-changing system of capitalism and its other cultural constructs in which we all operate, right? So I agree that Ngozi would not say, ah, yes, Biddy, the old elephant wearing like face of the Republicans. Like obviously not, right? But oh my God, Biddy Log Cabin Republican. Put that on a shelf for later. No, honestly, honestly, I believe it. I feel like if Biddy walked into basically a young Republicans meeting and was like, hey y'all, I'm gay and my husband is this like extremely straight acting NHL player, every single person in the room would be like, thank you, Jesus. I, yes, agree. Somebody write that stat. I need it to keep living. Anyway, listen, there are different ways that we enact values. There are different ways that we can understand narrative. Am I going to repeat all the points of a blog post I read in 2009 that my friend sent me about how plot is, you know, patriarchal? No. However, it is. And so... I just think that that's one of the problems of this comic when we think about this, as you really succinctly put, liberation versus assimilation tension that happens in the comic. There are other things that Biddy could do. There are other ways that narratives can be told. Things do not have to be held from you simply because you haven't had enough anguish yet. Sports narratives and romance narratives, as we understand them in a non-experimental sense, require anguish, suffering, internalization of the values of the construct of the narrative in order to reach a happy ending or a climax, if you will. I mean, the point that keeps getting made or has been made about Jack versus Parse over, you know, the past couple years is that Parse got everything he wanted and didn't grow. Jack didn't get what he wanted and grew and the subtext is that like oh you have to suffer like you have to suffer in order to be a complete human being just being good enough at what you're trying to accomplish and able to achieve it without stripping yourself bare is not good enough i would also like to say yes and we can talk more about this as, you know, Cowlick with a question mark, et cetera, continues to show up in our conversations. But there's a real problem in that framing. The problem being, A, that like living in a hockey machine is anything that anyone could want because it allows them to be a whole human being, which no, it doesn't. If you kind of look at the system of elite hockey play from youth to early adulthood, it is one of suppression of personality, removing people from their homes, like literally removing people from their homes and removing people from their support networks as they become, you know, cogs in the greater NHL machine. Like it's not a supportive system, particularly, even though you also do obviously reap great financial reward if you do really well. Furthermore, there's a suggestion there that Kent got everything he wanted. Oh, you mean his adolescent boyfriend trying to kill himself and then refusing to talk to him? Like, that's what he wanted? That's a really supportive and gratifying experience? In that lack of nuance in the framing of the situation in which two people can have difficult experiences, harm each other, but not on purpose, or like there can be multiple experiences of the same event. This lack of understanding of that truth is part of the problem with Checkley's in the first place. Like hockey is many things. Society is many things. We have to live in it. And also it hurts us. And Checkley's, even though it says it addresses the things that hurt us in these systems, 
not only doesn't question them, it fully adopts them as as we've now said like 80 times in this particular podcast. So I'll stop. The problem is that it says it's not accepting the things that hurts us, even as it does. And that's that internalization process that I felt I really wanted to touch on. And that is inherent to the sort of capitalist nature and libertarian nature of Check, Please. Guys, also, if you haven't listened to the South Park Check, Please episode, I'm not saying you have to, but we talk about this and it was super interesting. So, you know, short shout out for this other episode we did. It's about three years of this comic until we get to strip number 4.22. So we're not going to discuss it in too much depth here, but... This strip that we're currently looking at, 1.20, is absolutely a bookend with 4.22. That is the game where Biddy checks somebody so that his team can win the Frozen Four and they become NCAA champions. And he loses a tooth and it's just very horny. We're going to get to that actual strip. So I don't mean to dig into that in particular, but in conversation with this strip, its earlier antecedent, the plot of Check, Please becomes Biddy learning not merely to accept, tolerate, overcome the kind of injury that he's sustaining here, but to pursue that kind of injury and also inflict it on other people. So he learns not only to take a check, but to turn around and give a check. That's what we're saying about assimilationism. He doesn't decide, you know what, I have other things to do. My priorities lie elsewhere. He somehow figures out how to become the kind of player who does to him what happens to him in this trip. And that would be a really, really interesting and fascinating narrative if it weren't played totally straight and as a happy ending. There's something kind of incredible and tragic about that. And we'll get to it when we talk more about that strip. I don't mean to kind of dive too early into it. But the problem of Check, Please isn't that it talks about that process. It's that it celebrates that process. And to just kind of like wrap up what's the larger point of this stuff that we've been largely complaining about now for, I don't know, maybe an hour. Who knows what it'll be when this episode is edited. I think we need to keep in the back of our minds as we keep going. Is this the reading we're supposed to be getting out of this comic? If not, why do we keep reading it that way? What is it about the text that continues to lead us back to these conclusions But if so, why should we read the story as a deconstruction of toxic masculinity? And I think we're only about a quarter of the way through the story, so I don't know that we can answer these questions now, but I really think they're important to keep in mind because, again, the legacy of this comic has been built into a deconstruction of toxic masculinity. And I think we need to keep asking ourselves... Is this story actually deconstructing anything? If so, what and how? And if not, why is it getting credit for it? Is it just because the creator keeps saying it? Is it because the media has decided? Or is it because of something else? And I don't know that we can answer that yet, but that's the question that keeps coming to mind for me, and that's where I would leave off with this strip. Any any uh, other thoughts on on 1.20? I don't think so. It's a really really interesting strip. I think our conversation about it has been really fun for me to have. I'm curious to see what we think going into the rest of the year and into year 2. And I think that we're about to hit a run of the comic where Ngozi's storytelling skill gets really interesting and I'm pretty excited about it. My final thought on this strip, other than that, I do want to emphasize that it's good. I think this is a really well-executed standalone episode of this this comic, even with the one before it, uh, 1.19, Playoffs 2. Like, I think it's a really positive sequence. I think it's maybe worth asking what Playoffs 1 is doing in this sequence. 
but we didn't put that on the outline, so forget about it. The final thought I have is that the panel of Biddy's helmet flying off and scattering across the ice is the uh, banner headline for Heartbreak Fest, which is going to be posting over the next couple of weeks. So check that out. There's a lot about sacrificing the body, or rather the torso, and um, it'll be cool. It'll be fun. Some other news that I want to bring up, probably this should have gone at the start of the episode. We are soliciting uh, input into what should be on our poll for our next end of semester special episode. You thought the last poll was complicated? Well, now this one's even more complicated because we are soliciting uh, ideas from listeners to put onto the poll. Right now we have a couple ideas. Neither of them are things I really want to talk about. One of them, I'll be honest, is about watching the Mighty Ducks. So um, I think by the time this episode goes up, um, that, that suggestion box will probably be closed, but we should have a poll up with the results of, of that suggestion process and, of course, some of our ideas as well. And uh, you're all encouraged to vote in it because, yeah, we're getting pretty close to the end of this semester of the comic. Uh, it wasn't that long and we're going to be heading into year two before we know it. So it's time to pause again and have yet another special episode. I'm pretty psyched. Next time on Check Displeased, your number one podcast for both hockey checks and displeasure. We'll be heading into comic strip 1.21, Banquet. So I've been Secret OMG. You can find me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or Secret OMG, S-K-R-T-O-M-G, both on Tumblr. Or I'm familiar on AO3, where I have some new fix. Check them out. I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. That's it. I got nothing. <laughs> well, if people want to, if people have amnesia after they listen to this episode of the podcast and they don't remember where they found it, where would they find our podcast? You can find us at checkdispleased.tumblr.com, on Spotify under Check Displeased, and on Podbean as well. All right. Well, I guess I'll leave off by saying that I think that prostate milking is an integral part of sports medicine and that it really just helps like keep you focused and like you know, it like de de clouds the brain and it like gets rid of toxins in the prostate. And um, perhaps some hockey players would benefit from fact, prostate milking. In fact, perhaps some hockey players could someday come on a podcast, you know, a podcast near you and tell you all about the magic of prostate milking. And uh I, for one, would listen to it. Would I pay for that Patreon? I would. Okay, I'm going to stop recording, but this has been a lot of fun. Um, bye. Bye. Oh, shit. Yes, he is biting my shoulder blades. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>